Good morning, Grace Fellowship Church, and uh, welcome especially to those who are visiting with us today. We're really glad you're here. Thanks for taking the time out of your week to come and, and see us. We uh, here at Grace Fellowship, we love the Bible and we love people. Both of those things we love a lot, and hopefully you will experience that firsthand uh, by the time you leave here today. And I want to just encourage you guys, if you are uh, visiting with us today, there are these Connect cards you can find uh, right out in the lobby. And on the back is an opportunity to put down a name and email address. And if there's any needs you have, you can just fill that out and drop it in the uh, offering box that's right next to it. And we'd love to connect with you. Uh, I believe uh, Bible's are already handed out. So if you want, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, which if you have one of these church Bibles is page 575. While you turn there, I want to tell you a little story. Years ago, I was having lunch at a little restaurant with a pastor friend of mine uh, that I'd met through a, a mutual friend. And the conversation, as I got to know this guy, started pretty well. This pastor and I were similar in some ways. He was sharing with great passion uh, what Jesus had done in his life uh, to bring him into a relationship with, with God. And like me, he had come to know Jesus in college, and like me, he was very eager to see uh, lots and lots of people come to know Jesus. And so we were having a great conversation. At one point, we got on the topic of godly heroes in the Bible, and I mentioned how much I'd recently been impacted at the time by reading through the book of 1 Samuel, and, uh, and particularly by the godly men and women that I saw in that book. I even went so far as, as, as to suggest that he consider a sermon series in his church through the book of 1 Samuel uh, covering some of these, these themes that we've been talking about, and I thought that would really encourage his congregation. And then my pastor friend replied to me and said, uh, well, I don't preach from the Old Testament. And I said, why not? And he said, at my church, I preach Jesus Christ and him crucified every single week. And I can't do that from the Old Testament. Here at Grace Fellowship Church, we preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified every single week. And we seek to do that year after year, and we'll never stop doing so by God's grace. But here at Grace Fellowship Church, that includes preaching from both the New and the Old Testaments. In fact, we're going to spend much of the next year going through the book of Exodus, a book very much in the Old Testament. So who is right? Because if, if my pastor friend is right, then we're about to waste your time for most of the next year. If we're right, and I believe we are, then my pastor friend is missing out on some of the most amazing truths about Jesus that are found in the Old Testament. So today, we are going to look at the questions of why and how we see Jesus in the Old Testament. So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to address those questions one at a time. God, we ask for your help now. We ask for wisdom. We ask for uh, understanding as you open our eyes and ears to hearing Jesus and seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. God, even as we begin our time looking at a New Testament passage, we pray that it would uh, cause our hearts to burn within us, seeing Jesus uh, in the Old Testament and worshiping him even there. God, thank you for this privilege to speak your word this morning. Uh, bless us all as we hear from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with this first question. 
Why do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? To answer the why question, we're going to look at Luke chapter 24. This is the very end of the Gospel of Luke. In this book, Luke has carefully traced out the entire life, death, and subsequent resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. In fact, at the beginning of this chapter, some women went to the tomb where Jesus had been buried, and he wasn't there. And they uh, then go and report this information to the apostles, and Peter wants to see it for himself and runs all the way to the tomb and indeed finds it empty. He verifies it for himself. Now, the thing is, none of them, none of the, the apostles, none of Jesus' followers at this point really understand what's going on. And that's where Luke uh, picks up in chapter 24. We're going to start at verse 13 and read through verse 32. That very day, two of them, that's Jesus' disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us said, I'm sorry, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening. The day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. So, here's the situation. Two of Jesus' disciples, downtrodden and more than a little confused from the reports of recent events, are walking along the road to this village called Emmaus. And of all people, Jesus himself ends up walking alongside of them, and somehow they don't recognize him. And we don't know exactly how, it could have been divinely ordained um, such that they just could not see. They could not recognize him, and that was from God. It could have been, perhaps, that he was wearing one of those big Jedi robes with the hood that covers your face, and they're walking along, and they couldn't see him. Or, perhaps, it was simply that the last time they'd seen Jesus, he w had been uh, brutally attacked, flogged, and left to die hanging on a cross. This Jesus, walking with them with his 
resurrected, restored body would not at all have been the person they're expecting to see any more than if you knew a friend in high school who was extremely overweight and now you just saw them again, you know, 10 or 15 years later and they have lost a ton of weight. You don't even recognize them at first. It's like that, but a lot more with more blood and flogging. So regardless, there are now two disciples and the resurrected Jesus on the way to Emmaus. And as they go, Jesus enters into the conversation and asks about recent events. And after they express surprise that he doesn't know these things, and they fill him in for a while, Jesus speaks up in the form of a rebuke. In verse 25 and 26, he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Notice, he doesn't rebuke them for failing to recognize him on the Emmaus Road. He rebukes them for failing to recognize him in the Old Testament scriptures. And then in verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, by Moses, Luke, the author of this account here, is referring to the first five books of the the Bible, which uh, it is believed Moses wrote. And so Luke is basically saying that, that Jesus did a Bible study from page one of the Bible all the way up to the present time on this road to Emmaus. Now, what a discussion that must have been. What I wouldn't have given to hear that. What an amazing gift those two men received on that day. This would be like having George Washington help you with your American Revolution class or Albert Einstein help you write your, your physics paper. Except it's God helping you with your history of the universe, focusing in on the most important person in the universe. So here, friends, lies the answer to our initial question. Why do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? It's because Jesus expects us to find him there. My pastor friend, sadly, was very wrong. Failure to see Jesus in the Old Testament invites from Jesus the same rebuke that these two men received on the Emmaus Road. Foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, sadly, we do not have a transcript of the sermon Jesus gave as he walked along the Emmaus Road. So that the, the other part of our question remains, how do we today see Jesus in the Old Testament? Obviously, we can begin with Moses and use all the scriptures, but how? How do we do that? And that's what the rest of our time together is going to be spent on. I'm going to discuss three ways we see Jesus in the Old Testament, and I'll also briefly cover two warnings, ways we might go off the rails when looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, for this point, I'm going to be referencing a lot of scripture. You probably won't have time to flip and read each passage, but you may want to jot down the reference and look it up later to verify the things I'm saying. I also want to acknowledge that some here may not be familiar with these passages at all. You might be here checking out Jesus or visiting with us, and you don't yet believe all the scriptures say about him. And I want you to know that that's okay. I'm so glad you're here anyway, and my hope 
is even if all of this that we're about to cover is new to you, you've never heard it before, it will whet your appetite to go and read the Old Testament and see that what Jesus said is true. That the scriptures written by dozens of men over thousands of years all point to one man called the Christ who would also somehow be God. And that the scriptures say that this man would be our only hope of becoming right with God, forgiving us of all our wickedness and rebellion against God. It's the most wonderful story ever told, and it's especially so because it is altogether true and altogether trustworthy. So let's dive in to learn about this story, shall we? Here are ways that we see Jesus in the Old Testament. Number one, prophecy. By prophecy, I mean a promise of God to be fulfilled at some future point. And for our purposes this morning, I'm specifically referring to the promises of God that the Christ, also called the Messiah, same word, different languages, would one day come and save his people. In fact, one very broad tagline, if you wanted to just label the Old Testament with one phrase, it could be, he's coming. Then when you get to the New Testament and you read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's here. And then the rest of the Bible is, is basically, so what? Or perhaps, he's coming back. Both might be reasonable taglines. But as we look throughout the Old Testament, we see many prophecies that tell of the Messiah to come. He's coming. We're told to expect him, even over the course of many, many years. And what we're told, while sometimes fuzzy, or even seemingly contradictory, all makes absolutely perfect sense when you meet the person of Jesus. What do I mean? Well, let's consider some scripture. Genesis 3, particularly verse 15. But at the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, God created all things, and all things were absolutely perfect and good for about two chapters. Then the serpent shows up and deceives Eve, and all mankind falls into sin. Yet even in the midst of that tragic event, we find the very first promise of one who will come and restore all things. God said that the seed of the woman, that is, her offspring, would crush the head of the snake. From this we know that God's Redeemer would be the Son of Man. And also that he'd have sure victory over the snake who has caused the fall of mankind. Now, fast forward. Skipping ahead to later passages in Genesis, we are told that the Messiah, this, this one who is the son of man and would have victory over the snake, would come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. Okay, so this, it's the, of all the people, there's a particular family tree that's being traced out, and the Bible says again and again, the Messiah is going to come through these people. You then jump ahead more to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're told there, God promises that this Messiah would also come through the line of David, further narrowing down the branch uh, that, that the king would come through. And in fact, he would be a king. He's going to be the heir to David's throne. David was promised an everlasting kingdom. So this coming Messiah would be a king and the son of David. Then the strangest thing happens when you turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 7, the Messiah would be declared the son of God. 
Now, this was especially strange because we were told he was going to be the son of a man, and man is not the same as God, and so how could he be the son of God and the son of man? Perplexing. How could this be? In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, God, we're told, would cause a virgin to give birth to one who would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's also strange because a virgin, a, a woman of, of the type of man, mankind, was going to give birth, have a baby, and everybody in here has a mommy and a daddy, and you are born a human because your mommy and daddy were human, most of you. And, and yet this woman is going to give birth to someone whose name means God with us. That's weird. That's strange. Doesn't quite make sense yet. Then we get to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And we're told in that book that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, David's hometown. This is how, this is how when you, when you read the Christmas story and you, you know that the, the Magi come and they meet up with Herod and Herod says, where is this Christ supposed to be born? They didn't just make something up or like, you know, do some kind of divination with some water or something. They just looked at the Bible and they said, well, in Micah, it says the Messiah, when he comes, is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so off they go to Bethlehem to find him. And then in Isaiah 53, perhaps the most famous of all the prophecies in the Old Testament, this extended passage speaks of the Christ being despised and rejected that he would be pierced for our transgressions, that we would be healed by his wounds. Though we, like sheep, had gone astray, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And even though that passage tells us that he would die as a sacrifice, somehow he would still live to see the results. How? How does this make sense? Well, there are many, many more passages that could be labeled as prophetic of the coming Messiah. And, and this tension has been built. How can this person be all of these things? This seems impossible. We should be on the lookout. He's coming. It's going to be weird, but it's going to be great. So as you're reading the Old Testament and come upon a passage that speaks of someone yet to come, and especially if that person is called a king, or the Lord's chosen one, or the Lord's servant, or, or just some significant individual who remains unnamed, promised, it might be good to pause and wonder, could this be an Old Testament signpost pointing to the New Testament Savior, Jesus of Nazareth? That's one way to find Jesus in the Old Testament. That's the first one, prophecy. Number two, presence. I don't love this term, but I couldn't find a better theologically rich one. So presence. There's, there's another kind of way we see Jesus in the Old Testament. And we see Jesus in the Old Testament, what I'm calling presence, because the New Testament tells us that he was present. Okay, so without, so in these instances, we, we probably wouldn't have known about Jesus' presence there if the New Testament authors didn't so kindly fill us in. But they are very clear. And thus, we must include them in our list of ways to see Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, there aren't many of these kinds of passages. This morning, I'm just going to, I'm just going to talk about two of these, okay? So you know what I'm talking about. The first one is in Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16. I'll read that for you. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God 
the firstborn of all creation. And listen to this. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The Apostle Paul, in writing this letter to the Colossians, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that Jesus was there at the creation. And by him, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. How does that work? It's this thing called the Trinity, and we're not going to cover that today. That's a whole other sermon series. So uh, right now, what's clear to us for our purposes is that Jesus is in the Old Testament right there on page one of your Bible. There he is, right at the beginning, all things created. The second example we're going to look at is John chapter 8. Okay, I love this one. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. In this chapter, surprise, surprise, some Pharisees and Jews are arguing with Jesus. Okay? We're going to pick up in verse 56. Listen to this. Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, not yet 50 years old and you've seen abraham jesus said to them truly truly i say to you before abraham was i am i love to spend extended time on this passage because there's actually all kinds of amazing things being said here in just those couple verses however note specifically what this passage says about jesus in the old testament Jesus claims that Abraham, who lived about 2,000 years earlier, saw him and was happy about it. The Jews, after doing some quick math, determined that Jesus, who was only 30, could not have been there with Abraham, who was about 2,000 at that time. Yet Jesus says that before Abraham was, Jesus was. So Jesus here is saying that if you turn to any page in the Old Testament, even before Abraham... He was there. Jesus was present. And that's what we learn from these couple passages. We learn that some New Testament passages tell us explicitly that we can see Jesus in the Old Testament, and it would seem all over the Old Testament, back at the creation, before Abraham. There he is. We should look for him. He's there. And that brings us to our final way to see Jesus in the Old Testament that I'm going to mention this morning. Number three, themes and types. Now, perhaps I'm cheating. These are really two ways to see Jesus in the Old Testament. We're going to treat them as one this morning, and you can complain to me afterwards if you want to disagree. But first, this idea of themes is the most common way in which the Old Testament points to Jesus. Let me illustrate what I mean, what I mean by themes by referencing a different kind of theme. Okay, listen carefully. This includes my children. I want you guys to listen to this. You're going to know this one. What does this make you think of? What's that? Star Wars. And what in particular? What, what theme is that? Yeah, the Imperial March. That's right. That's the name of the, the song. And, and whenever, whenever you hear that, who shows up? Darth Vader. Darth Vader shows up. That's, that's the Darth Vader theme. Right? And, and when you hear that theme in Star Wars anywhere, you know that Darth Vader is coming. Even if you don't see him yet, you know he's coming. And in fact, one of the most fun things to do is when you watch the prequels, episodes one, two, and three, where Darth Vader doesn't show up to the very end of chapter three, or of, of episode three, 
is they still play that theme. Usually it's just little little snippets of it, kind of quietly in the background. But if you know Darth Vader's theme, if you know what he looks like and sounds like, you can hear him coming way before he ever shows up. The Bible does something very similar, and that's why I use this term, themes. So let's take, for example, if you open up the book of Judges, okay, and start reading, you're going to see many repeated themes. The rebellion of the people against God would be a theme. The lack of a king is a theme. God sending a rescuer to save Israel from the enemy and so on. These themes happen again and again and again and again. Every time you turn the pages in Judges, it's the same thing, just repeated over and over and over again. Then you, you turn your Bible to the next book, 1 Samuel, and then you continue into 2 Samuel. And in these books, the rebellion continues. But this time, a king shows up. Okay, so a variation on the theme. But he's a pretty pitiful king, and so God sends a rescuer in the form of a new king to save Israel from the enemy. So we still have the repeated themes happening. Then you get to First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and the rebellion against God continues. The theme continues. And though there is always a king, the, the king in those books is usually the one leading the rebellion of the people. And God sends rescuers after rescuer after rescuer to save Israel from their enemies, again, both external and internal, over and over and over again. It gets so repetitive. You're, you, you get so depressed reading those books because it's just bad king. Oh, maybe the next one will be good. Oh, he starts out good. Oh, and he turned bad. Okay, you know, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad Oh, and you just, if you ever sit down and read those books, just like take a whole afternoon and just read and read and read, you will feel so depressed. Yes, the Bible can make you quite depressed. It's true. But then you get to the New Testament. The people are still rebelling against God. There are still kings, though none of them honor God. And then, one still night in the little town of Bethlehem, beneath a particularly bright star, God sends a rescuer to save Israel from the enemy one last time. Friends, the Old Testament is absolutely packed with such themes. Next time you start reading the Bible from the beginning, from the Old Testament, look for these themes. Trace out these themes of, of sin and sacrifice and God's dwelling place. Sometimes called the tabernacle. Sometimes it's the temple. Sometimes that's all blown apart and you're like, where's God? Ah, his dwelling place is with his people. Things like that. Trace out prophets and the theme of exile and salvation and many more. Every one of those themes directly or indirectly point us to Jesus. Because Jesus came to conquer our sin through his perfect once-for-all sacrifice. He is the greater temple where God now dwells with man in the most intimate way. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the greatest of prophets. Every word he speaks with every breath he utters, he's speaking God's word. He is the greatest of prophets. He underwent exile, physical and spiritual, so that we will never have to. And he is the salvation that the entire Old Testament is crying out for. When you are flipping through first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles and you're feeling really discouraged, it's because the night is darkest before the dawn. And that's when Jesus shows up.
In fact, in the person of Jesus, every biblical theme finds finds its crescendo, the crescendo of Christ. No wonder he rebukes his disciples for being slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. If they had been paid attention, if our kids can pick up on the Darth Vader theme, then all of God's people should have been listening for his arrival and should have recognized him. Now let me take a moment to mention the the other term in this point, types. Types are very similar to themes. Think of types as foreshadowing via a particular person, event, or or institution in the Old Testament. So in simple terms, anytime you can say Jesus is like blank but perfect, you've identified a type. Okay, so for example, Jesus is the greater Adam in that he too was a representative for mankind. But instead of plunging mankind into sin, he delivered mankind from sin. Jesus is the greater David in that he is God's chosen king to humbly yet powerfully rule over his people. Jesus is the greater Passover lamb, giving his life so that God's wrath would pass over his imperfect people forever. Now, if themes and types seem basically the same to you, that's fine. That's why I made them one point. The key isn't to find the right terms. It's to find pointers to the right Savior. So that that is the third way that you could see Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, I want to conclude our time with, with a couple warnings. Warning number one, when you're looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, understand the original context. Recently, I was studying an Old Testament passage with a friend. We observed what the text said. We asked interpretive questions about what that text means. We even got excited as we saw what seemed to be clear pointers to Christ. In, partic- in this particular case, it was uh, one of those, those kings in, in, in First and Second Kings there that's really pitiful and sad. And, and, and yet, we realized that this guy was kind of a, a type or even an anti-type of Christ. But when we sought to nail down the main point, what my friend came up with was, Jesus is the better king. Was he right or was he wrong? Well, of course he was right in that, if you've been paying attention this morning, I've just been saying you can find Jesus using those themes and types and you could look for Jesus and certainly he was a better king. Jesus was a better king than this guy that we were looking at. So is my friend right? Yes. But I don't think my friend is altogether right. And here's why. The reason is because the Old Testament passages we read were written to a particular people at a particular time for a particular purpose. The original author fully intended that the recipients of what he wrote would understand his reasons for writing. And thus, if we ever arrive at a main point that that the original audience could not have, we've missed the mark. We, We don't have our main point quite nailed down yet. Now, it's true that we know more than those Old Testament audiences did, and that's totally fine. In fact, a wise way, I think, to frame a main point such that it has a clear initial fulfillment or understanding that the, the, initial, the original audience can understand and also pointing us towards Jesus, this Old Testament signpost, uh, you, you could, you could, you want to have a main point that can do both of those ideally, 
but you, you just don't want it to be only about the ultimate fulfillment. It shouldn't just be Jesus is blank, okay? So here's a tip. Anytime you arrive at an Old Testament main point of something like Jesus is blank or Jesus will blank, then just ask the question, how could the original audience know that? And you will arrive at what is probably a better main point. So, for example, God will do blank to save his people such that there's the audience, the original audience can understand how God will do that. And Jesus is the ultimate way that God will do that. Or perhaps God's king will do blank in that this king that we're talking about will do blank, but Jesus will do blank even better. Or a greater sacrifice is needed to accomplish blank because the current sacrificial system, the, the Passover lamb, all of the, 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 the death that has to happen, the original audience would say, yes, there's got to be something better than this that God has in store for us. And then when we get to the New Testament, we say, yes, indeed, and it was Jesus. He was that. So said another way, the main point of any Old Testament text should not contain Jesus, his name, but should be a pointer to Jesus. That's warning number one. Warning number two, briefly, not every person or verse who could be Jesus is. Simply, we don't want to go beyond what the scriptures say. Okay? So, for example, in Daniel chapter 3, a very famous story, all the Sunday school kids know this one, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tossed into the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, we're told that there was a fourth person walking around in the fire. And he's described as being like a son of the gods. And all good Christians say, son of God. Hmm. And you might say, well, that person is Jesus. And many people claim that that person walking around, that fourth person, was Jesus. And perhaps it is. But we're not told that. We're not told that that's Jesus. If anything, one like a son of the gods who enters into the fire to save his people sure sounds like a type of Christ. But the Bible doesn't actually say that it is Jesus. Or take, for example... Right at the very beginning of the Bible, it says that God was walking in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Well, was that Jesus? Because if it was God the Father, well, he's only spirit. The Bible says he's spirit, and so he doesn't have feet. So how could he walk? And the answer is, I don't know. Maybe it's Jesus, but we're not told that that's Jesus. We're not told that explicitly. So my, my warning here is simply to remain committed to holding firm what the scriptures hold firm and holding loosely to everything else. Now you are free to hold it. Just, just hold it loosely. Be willing to uh, have fellowship with those who say, I think you're wrong. Let me ask you guys two application questions to end our time. How, what, what does all this mean practically for us seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Number one, question for you, are you studying the Old Testament? My pastor friend wasn't, and it was hurting his whole church. Reading and studying the New Testament, though, though, though difficult in that it's theologically rich and deep, you, you study through some of the things that Paul and Peter and others say, and it can, it can seem really difficult, but sometimes actually seems easier in, in the sense that it's very clearly about Jesus and what he's done and the implications. But reading and studying the Old Testament, it can sometimes seem just plain difficult. You may read some stuff in Leviticus or Judges or some genealogy and say, I don't see Jesus anywhere in this. This is hard. Let me encourage you to not give up. Just keep studying 
the Old Testament. Consider the ways that we talked about this morning that we can see Jesus in the Old Testament through prophecy, through presence, through the themes and types. Or join one of our church's growth groups. There, in addition to those, for our visitors, these little connect cards, you could also pick up one of these little growth group cards. And there's just a little bit of information on the back, but there's a web address you can go to that will help you connect uh, into a growth group. Because in these growth groups, you can see Jesus come alive even through the Old Testament. Now, my growth group, which means on Monday nights, is, is studying First and Second Peter this next year, which is in the New Testament. But as you read what Peter writes, it is clear that Peter has been spending a lot of time looking at his Old Testament uh, and, and, and considering how does this apply. And so even though we're looking technically at a New Testament book, we're going to be referencing a ton of the Old Testament. So I invite you to come and check it out. Come to our growth group on Monday night or come to one of the other growth groups. I don't even know what they're all studying yet, but they're, you can't totally understand the New Testament and the person of Jesus without looking at the Old Testament. This will be really helpful for you to learn to do this better. Application question number two to end our time. Do your hearts burn as you see Jesus in the Old Testament? In the first passage we looked at in Luke 24, when Jesus opened up the Old Testament to those disciples on the Emmaus Road, they said that their hearts burned. Does yours. Now, I'm not talking about emotion here. I'm not saying you just you have to just break out into tears or, or immediately sing a song when you read the Old Testament and be like, oh, it's Jesus! You know, that's not what I'm saying, though that may come and that's okay. Just don't wake up your family if you do it early in the morning. I... I think, I think when they're talking about their hearts burning, they're referring more to joy, to awe, to thankfulness, to, to the wonder at the perfect plan of God as he blends each of these Old Testament themes into the crescendo of Christ. If your hearts aren't moved like that as you read the Old Testament, at least occasionally, I think you may be missing the whole point of the Old Testament. So to help you, anytime you're studying an Old Testament passage, and especially if you're like, I, I, just, I don't get it. What does this have to do with me? This is about a sacrificial system. This is a guy's genealogy. Ask yourself, where do I see Jesus? And look for the prophecy. Look for this presence. Look for these types and themes. And as you start to see him in more and more places, I think your heart will burn within you. You will start to see the whole point of all that God has done throughout all time to point us to Jesus. And, and finally, pray. Pray and ask God to show His Son in the Bible. That's, that's why He wrote this, friends. This isn't some mystery that He, he just wants us to, to, you know, stare at and be like, oh, I just hope the words jump off the pages. He wrote this to us so that we would know His Son, Jesus. So pray and ask Him to do that for you. He will be delighted to answer that prayer. And in fact, let's close our time right now by doing just that. Let's pray and ask God to help us. God, you have written through many people over thousands of years an incredible book. And this whole book, Lord, is, is there to tell us about Jesus, this person who was promised for thousands of years. And all people looked forward and said, what will he be like? When will he come? How will I know him? And so, Jesus, you, we, we, we know that you were right to rebuke your disciples. That they didn't even recognize you. They didn't understand. 
And yet, God, we, we, we confess that we do the same thing. It's so easy for us to see things without really seeing them, without understanding the point. God, would you help us as we study the Old Testament to see your son there? Would you help us to, to deeply appreciate why we can find him in the Old Testament and how we can do that? Would you uh, cause our hearts to burn within us? Would you give us insights and uh, great joy and hope as we anticipate this same Jesus coming again to restore us uh, to you in the fullest possible way. Thank you, Jesus, for your work. Thank you, Father, for uh, this book. And thank you, Spirit, for showing us these things. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.